on this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. So if we could train all children in spatial reasoning and distribute that effect across the entire population, we would actually double the number of people whose spatial skills are as strong as those of current engineers. That and a whole lot more coming up. Hello, everybody. Today on our episode, we are talking with our guest about test validity, test equity, how to prepare students for cognitive tests like the COGAT test, how to show a student's capacity for learning, and also we bring on the idea of visual spatial intelligence and how to develop that spatial talent. Our guest today is a professor of educational studies at the University of Alabama, where she is also an affiliate of the Gifted Education and Talent Development Office there. She is also known, her claim to fame is being the lead author of the COGAT or the Cognitive Ability Tests, which we find quite remarkable as we use this test all the time. So welcome, Dr. Joni Lincoln. Would you go ahead and just talk to us a little bit about yourself? Give us your little bio. Okay. So I was, um, well, I like to go way back. I was born and raised in Alabama and I ended up back in Alabama. So some folks think, you know, I come from somewhere else, um, born and raised. Um, so that's an important part of my identity because I grew up in a place that's not known for really great education. True. Um, but I'm, you know, trying to kind of change the, the view of Alabama a little bit. Um, but so I started out there uh, and I ended up, through a series of events, obviously, going to grad school at Iowa, um, which I did not want to go to because I didn't know about snow and they have a lot of tornadoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and all of that did happen. We had a tornado go right through Iowa City. But um, you know, the great part was that I got to work with Dave Lohman. He was my doctoral advisor um, for my six years while I was in grad school. So, um, you know, working with Lohman, he was developing Form 7 of COGAT, and I was really involved in that. So it pretty much started when I got there as a grad student. So, you know, I already had deep experience with COGAT, with what we're trying to measure, and just working with Dave and, and understanding kind of the the art of test development. So... Um, you know, I was just, I was a typical nerdy kid, uh, and so I remember the, uh, taking a test in second grade, and there were gears, and you had to say which way it was, so it's mechanical reasoning uh, task now, I know, um, and I loved it, and I always loved test um, days, well, not always loved it, but I was excited to see what it was, and if it was something besides just, you know, fill in the blank or multiple choice, I was so excited, so uh, I've always been a testing nerd, and so that was just a phenomenal opportunity when I got to grad school that I got to build a test. Uh, and then I always say like I, it's almost like royalty. I inherited COGAD. It was passed down to me uh, from Loman as he was retiring. So, wow. So yeah, we were talking about, you know, form eight was the first one that I was listed as an author on. Uh, but really the plan is for me to sort of inherit it and carry it forward and try to continue that legacy that really began with, um, you know, uh, Bob Thorndike like in the 50s, and then Betty Hagan was an author, and then Loman with Betty, and then and now I'm on. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it's an incredible lineage yeah. uh, and a big responsibility, but I'm, yeah, I'm very lucky that I 
I got the crown passed to me, and now I get to be. Oh my gosh! I, I do feel like we're sitting. I know. That's real. Yes, because we like say it. are giving this test all the time to our students, <laughs> so it's kind of kind of neat to put it all in perspective. I've, even, I've had colleagues say, like, I told my daughter that she, I knew the person who wrote the code. <laughs> we're definitely getting a selfie. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, kind of, as a creator of and as a part of this COGAT test, what is kind of your mission? So. Uh, so let me go back to grad school. Um, my focus was English learners. And so <laughs> this will sound boring, but my dissertation was on test directions for English learners. Oh, nice. Um, but really Which that's important. <laughs> it's very niche, uh, but that's what <laughs> dissertations are. So, um, you know, I was really interested in the gaps in performance for English learners and how we could address that. I felt like that was something we could probably reduce through the right kind of practices. And so basically, you know, test directions kind of border on to test practice. And so I was really interested in kind of that interplay of how do you prepare for an ability test, you know, not to just max it out, but to show your true kind of abilities, your capacity for learning. So that is a valid, useful piece of information about that student. So, um, you know, talking about test directions, I was thinking about, you know, like first generation, especially Spanish speaking students coming, low economic, I guess is the important part, um, and giving them the practice, the exposure to this kind of thinking strategies and this kind of test just to take that initial unfamiliarity out of the equation. So this is a podcast, people can't see my hands, but I always think about <laughs> the learning trajectory, right, where early learning is very rapid and then it kind of flattens out. And so... I would say the point of test directions is to get you through that early trajectory to the part where you, you know, additional practice isn't beneficial. So just trying to get that initial novelty and familiarity out of the way. Mm -hmm. Wow. So then did you set out in grad school to be a part of where you are now, like to be a part of inheriting the COGAT and the responsibility and now what your mission is of test validity and fairness? Or did that just kind of come about from where you started with your dissertation? So, no, I feel very fortunate to inherit COGAT. You know, like, Lone had a lot of great grad students over the years. I think it was a combination of being not a flake, and I was there <laughs> at the right time. So a lot of his more senior grad students would have been established in their careers, and I was kind of early, mid-career. So it was the right time for me uh, to be someone who stepped in. Uh, and then... So there were years in the middle where I was doing research that wasn't related to COGAT directly, um, and that's where I, you know, I'm really interested in all tests, not just COGAT, but um, the validity, the interpretation of those scores for these different groups, of all the different kinds of students we're trying to test, and can we have similar interpretations for them regardless of their background? Uh, and then just kind of grappling with this whole issue of, you know, there's this desire, especially in gifted education, right? We want no differences. We want to just give a test and get exactly proportional representation of students. And it's just not possible. Uh, and that's because of the educational institutions that we have from economic disparities. There's no magic bullet. And so kind of grappling with that and how to talk to, especially teachers and specialists, about how that's not even possible. It's not possible to to give a test that looks past opportunity and exposure and differences in resources. So I like to say, you know, learn from listening to other folks that tests are like a mirror, right, so that we can see the economic disparities. Um, it's not any kind of tool to change economic disparities, at least in the short term. So, so yeah, I mean, if you have a good test, a valid test, it's going to show some gaps because of the input, like what the students bring to the table. So 
you know, I would love, and I have tried to look at like different ways of testing to mitigate that. Um, but testing is super complicated, actually. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what yeah. would be a piece of advice that you would give, like a district or you know, school systems, to kind of lessen that? Hundred percent practice. Okay. So, do you how how would a district yeah. implement like practicing? a test like the COGAT in mm-hmm. their classrooms. So, so one of the things with Form 7, carried over to Form 8, of course, um, was basic pra- practice activities. Again, kind of getting them through that initial learning trajectory where just a few, like, what's an analogy? What are we looking for? What are we doing here? How do I open a test booklet? How do I mark my answers? Um, all of those are skills that we know as adults and we forget that we ever had to learn it. And so when you have kids who have you know, very involved parents who know the system, who know the ins and outs of identification, they may have taken something that looks like COGAD. They may have gone to practice prep companies and been exposed to that. And then there's other students whose parents don't know. They don't have the, they, you know, I, I think all parents or most parents, barring psychological issues, um, deeply love their children and want the best for them, but they don't have that insider information. Mm-hmm. So they don't know that everyone else has already seen analogies and taken a multiple choice test. Um, so it's really important that we give those minimal, those basic opportunities to all students. And that way, again, we're getting through that kind of initial shock of what is this? What am I doing? Yeah. Uh, and get on to the part where you're reasoning about words and numbers and figures. So with kids coming to school, especially public schools, with multiple ranges of exposure or not exposure, how can a gen ed teacher implement, like you're saying, obviously they teach examples of what are analogies and things like that, but how can they implement those thinking skills or even the spatial reasoning skills in their regular curriculum without feeling like they're adding one more thing? Or teaching to the test. Yeah, yeah. Or so, crossing that line. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, intentionally our practice tests are really short. They're pretty easy items. It's not really designed to teach you kind of fundamentally how the analogical reasoning works. It's more like take a test, how we kind of do this. So it should be very brief because we don't want, that's not worth your time to teach how to complete a figural analogy question. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really have authentic applications. Um, what's more important is to teach analogical reasoning because that is a tool that we use in everyday life. So um, I really like some of these kind of called front-loading sort of programs. So April Wells has one. Um, <laughs> we talked yes. to her. We talked to, yes, yeah, we love April. Year. She's I so inspiring. April. She's wonderful. And they do have that curriculum. Um, that I think they're still working on bringing it kind of to commercial Mainstream, availability. Yeah. Yeah, um, so that, and then, you know, there's the primary thinking skills, pets, those mm-hmm. older um, curriculum. But the, the cool thing about them is they're trying to introduce students to ways of thinking that are generally useful and incidentally reflected on the test. So, um, so yeah, that's something that I really hope will grow is classroom activities that are useful and also happen to expose them mm-hmm. to these kinds of thinking. So, like, even as a teacher, like, number one thing you could do, the easiest thing, uh, and I do this when I test kids with COGAT, um, paper folding. It's really mm-hmm. hard to kind of interpret those abstract mm-hmm. pieces of paper. I grab a sticky note and I like I punch it with a, a pencil. I'm like, look, this is what we're doing. Look at the shape I made. Uh, and when I'm doing one-on-one testing, um, you know, that's usually all it takes for them to be like, oh, got it. They may mm-hmm. not get all the items correct, but they understand what are we talking about here. Um, so that's just like one, like it could be like a bell ringer, it could be an activity one day, it could be a craft project, where you're just thinking, like, I'm going to 
challenge these students to think about when I fold this paper and punch a hole in it, what's it going to look like? It makes me think of like snowflakes, actually. Now that <laughs> yeah. you're saying that, like folding it? it up and like cutting it. And then when you open it up, does it look like a snowflake or did I, you cut it? You know, I, yeah, I love making snowflakes. I love crafting of all <laughs> kinds. So yeah, exactly. Like it could be arts and crafts time, but you just take time to like use a whole punch and see what it's going to look like. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about what your presentation was here mm. at OAGC yesterday and the um, buzz, buzzword, if you will, about the spatial reasoning and spatial thinking. I think Ohio is the first place it's ever been a buzzword. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Yeah, like so there's, there's people doing this research, obviously. Uh, I didn't invent it, but... Um, you know, you've got Anne in your district, and, uh, you know, the fact that she's also presenting about spatial strategies, I was like, oh my gosh, a kindred spirit. Um, yes, and the turnout yes. was fantastic. Um, usually people are just sort of, you know, they're interested in STEM, or they've got, they themselves or someone in their family has spatial strengths, and so they've kind of noticed it before. It's really exciting for teachers to come and realizing this is an area of strategies and services that they, they need to provide. So uh, I'm really excited that the groundwork has kind of been laid for me here, so I could just talk about some of the things I've learned about strategies in the classroom to develop spatial thinking. Um, should I go back yeah. and like talk about what yeah, it if is? You, if you wouldn't mind. Like, I know that Cheryl Sorby has some ties to mm -hmm. University of Cincinnati, and now she's moved on. Yes, but right. I think her work, what, 15-plus years ago, mm -hmm. kind of opened that door for us to be starting to oh, realize okay. the impact of what's happening in K-12 grades but then what's really happening once a student goes to college and they are you know, choosing to go into a STEAM, STEM-related field career and finding out that maybe they're not able to cut it and then they get weeded out. So I think that would be an interesting mm -hmm. place to kind of start if you don't Yeah, like that's that. a great uh, connection. I forgot that she was at Cincinnati. Um, well, so one thing is that it's not so much that they're weeded out, say self-select out. So that's what's really interesting about um, some of Cheryl's work and the related work is that, and I've even talked to like geologists who say that, you know, people will choose, they themselves chose their field because they wanted to move away from the spatial thinking that was required in other kinds of areas. So even within specialties, people will self-select based on whether they feel like spatial thinking, whether they know it's spatial, but whether those kind of problems are really hard for them or yeah. is there some area that's easier where they can excel feel more comfortable. So it's, it's kind of like just sort of a, like the resistance, like driving through mm -hmm. mud versus driving on a road. So it's not that they couldn't do it. It's just like they're trying to figure out where the better place is for them. Uh, so yeah, so that's exactly, as yeah. you're choosing kind of a career path, yeah, it's a big component. Um, so yeah, so spatial thinking, I mean, it's a strategy for everyday life. It's not just a STEM skill. So the classic example is packing the car trunk, you know, how you get mm -hmm. all the suitcases in there. Can I turn this and squish this? That is a very practical way that we use spatial skills. Um, anytime I'm assembling IKEA furniture, I always get something flipped around. <laughs> I always have to disassemble it, which drives me We're crazy. We're kind of glad to hear that you don't have those same problems. And not I am us. not myself spatially gifted. I will have to add <laughs> This is not my strength. I'm, a, I'm very much a verbal, uh, balanced verbal kind of girl. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's not my strength. And a lot of folks when they're working with me will be really embarrassed. Like we'll have a question up there and we're trying to like talk about it and they're like, oh my God, I don't even know the answer to this. And I'm like, it's fine. It's a skill set. Um, so it's, yeah, so it's, it's a strategy. It's a way of solving problems. And it's something that we don't always get exposed to. So someone asked me yesterday a really great question about if spatial reasoning is malleable, 
if it can be changed through some pretty simple practice, which is what mm-hmm. Cheryl Sorby has shown, um, is it achievement or is it ability? No, I always show a continuum, right? There's, there's no like hard line between ability and achievement. But things that are more well-practiced that you encounter in everyday life kind of lean towards the abilities. And things that you learn through school and through kind of focused direct instruction are more achievement. And what's funny about spatial ability is that it, I really think it's more ability. It's a fundamental skill in the way that we learn uh, or a way that we can use to problem-solve and to learn. Um, but there are dis- it goes back to opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some folks are not exposed to it. Other folks maybe have a natural strength, and so they just kind of create, like people who take things apart, you know, no one told them to do that, they just take things apart, like that curiosity. That can help to sort of, you know, your initial spatial ability, it strengthens that over time. But then other, stu- you know, other children maybe don't have that natural tendency, and especially if you're a girl, uh, if you're, um, you know, in a family that's not aware of these kind of things, you may not get block play. You may not get um, experiences with building. So Amy Sheldon quoted, I don't know what her source is. I need to find it, but she's at Johns Hopkins. Um, and she said that if only girls are in the house, it's something like there's like a 50, 60% chance there are blocks in the house. And do you know what the percentage, if there's a little boy, at least one little boy, what's hmm. the percentage of houses that have blocks? Double. Yeah, 90. 100%. 100%. Woo, wow. I was just going to ask, because Jessica has two yeah. girls. Do you have blocks? Yeah, do you have blocks? I have tons of blocks. <laughs> we have tons of magniforms and all sorts of things like that for building. Yeah. Yeah, and so part of that's like you're not a... Yeah. Well, I'm an educator. You're an educator. <laughs> yeah, and you, you're, you're probably a little attuned to this to try to make sure. But even, like, you know, I was raised by... I thought my mom was kind of a feminist, but then when she had a granddaughter... She bought her a princess kitchen set, and I've never wow. <laughs> really forgiven her that. It was my <laughs> sister's daughter, but I'm like, Mom, I was raised on like <laughs> feminism and free to be you and me. How are you going to buy Abby <laughs> a pink <laughs> princess kitchen set? <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, like it really takes some intentionality to think I'm going to buy some balanced toys. And, um, yeah, so I talked about yesterday. Legos really isn't doing us too many favors because they're kind of playing into pink for girls and Sometimes when you look at the play sets for girls, they're actually not that building intensive. So you want to do a little bit of, it's not that you have to buy boy stuff for your girls or whatever, you know, or believe in the gender binary. You know, you can be very comfortable with both. Um, but look for those, the girl toys or the princess toys that are building the castle, not just figurines and, yes. you know, a tree that's like two or three pieces. Um, so I have two nieces in my life, so I've seen <laughs> a wide variety of girly Legos. Um, so yeah, I just really make sure that there's that building opportunity. Um, so going back to kind of the ability achievement, um, so that's why we think that there is kind of a large difference between boys and girls in spatial reasoning, um, and it does persist, and even if you have training, kind of everyone improves. Um, so it's not just that, but one piece is probably that girls are not called on to yeah. engage in spatial thinking from a young age and encouraged. You know, they may not be encouraged to take things apart or to work on the car with their dad or right. whatever. Um, so all of those sort yeah. of basic spatial engagements are just tend to be more masculine. So yesterday you talked um, about like specific strategies that classroom teachers and even parents could use, like mm-hmm. with reading and diagrams and sketching. And so can you just go into that a little bit and tell us yeah. some examples of what like teachers could go and use today? So number one thing is that sketching is a skill. Everyone can develop it. Um, so... You know, I really think it's important. I've heard teachers, you know, bring in an activity and teachers like, y'all know I'm not an artist and you're not either, but we're going to do this. I was like, let's have a little bit of a, you know, growth mindset here. (laughs) 
So, you know, there's many things that are hard to develop, but basic sketching skills, and I'm not talking about art, I'm not talking about, you know, drawing birds from nature, but basic, you know, what does a table look like? What, how am I, if I designed a piece of furniture, what would it look like? If I was going to lay out my room with furniture, mm-hmm. right, those are circles and squares and rectangles. You know, that's not anything crazy to draw, but just having that familiarity that sketching is a tool, it's a problem-solving tool, it's a way of capturing information in addition to writing or other ways of representing information. Um, so just kind of opening that whole idea of sketching as a resource mm-hmm. to students is really important. And I think we use it with our third graders when we're working on the design process. Mm-hmm. And so right now our unit is working on structures of the world's fairs. And so part of their design process was to collect information. And in that step, they all had to draw or sketch what their top secret structure of the World's Fair was. And we were actually really impressed with their sketches. I mean, one of the top secret um, buildings or or structures is the Atonium in Belgium. And so, I mean, just to see them making that Mm. three-dimensional cube with the spheres (laughs) as the corners. And I mean, it just is incredible what they can do, even the Space Needle. So it... It is neat to open that opportunity because I do think at sometimes we feel like there's so much to be covered in our state standards that mm. we just kind of skip over that. Even what you said about the snowflakes, we kind of like omit that and that's a craft. Yeah, it's not educational. We don't have time, yeah. and yet you are saying this is important. This is mm. valuable work to get our minds to be thinking in that way mm-hmm. to prepare us. And our students for what they will encounter in college. And even with snowflakes, you know, you can just cut it and see what happens. Or like when you're cutting like the paper dolls that are all mm-hmm. connected. Um, if you kind of challenge students to think, what is it going to look like? Or try to make it look like my snowflake. Because like, mm. then you're thinking, oh, how do I fold this? I need to fold it like eight times to get any, yeah. you know, get that number. Or even keep it folded with the cuts and then have them draw what yeah, pretty- it's going to look like before they open it up. Yeah, I, I got into a little snowflake kick a few years ago, and yeah, I was not that good. <laughs> no, we're all going to be doing snowflakes. We well, know what our winter activity is going to be. Doing God, that's way too simple. I got to try. Anyways, yeah. So I was, you know, trying to imagine as I was cutting. I was like, is this complex enough to be a cool snowflake? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, being more intentional about asking those questions and pushing kids. You know, so I talked about imagining, right? So, okay, mm-hmm. you know, and so. You know, the example you gave was engineering, which is awesome. Um, and if people have time for engineering, that's a, you know, obviously a fantastic way of developing spatial skills. But one of my goals yesterday was to talk about ways of, if you're teaching English, if you're teaching math, mm-hmm. obviously math. Yes, but, talk um, about that. That was really a cool yeah, example. Yeah, I, w- I, w- I just really want people to integrate it wherever they can because, yeah, it's not just for engineers. Mm-hmm. It is a whole different way of problem solving. And so, yeah, one example I gave was like mapping out a, a book that you're reading. That was great. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool one. And that's one I got from a teacher at Northwestern that I've been observing. Uh, and so, yeah, just kind of integrating it. So graphs, you know, I talked about literacy and how, you know, we don't realize that we had to learn how to read graphs. So really complex, like infographics are really cool. They're all over the Internet. And just sort of analyzing it and how how someone's communicating using it and maybe making your own mm-hmm. infographic could make a really cool um, sort of literacy communications ELA kind of activity. So, um, you know, any of these, whether you're drawing or designing, could be in other disciplines. And because Halloween is coming up, mm-hmm. tell us about what you did with our audience with the yes. candy. Yes, so highly recommend. <laughs> so if you need an educational activity that happens to have candy in it, um, we talked about cross-sections. So cross-sections, you know, like the way things work, a lot of kids' books have cross-sections of buildings and 
natural figures. Um, so what we talked about was kind of the, the literacy of cross-sections, how to represent, and then we did that with a candy bar. So it's a snack-sized candy bar, and we cut it in half. You have to draw it and then kind of create a legend for your, your, graph, your graphic of the, the candy bar. So... Yeah, I've used that at other teacher conferences. It goes over really well, buys me a lot of goodwill. Well, then it goes back to what we said about learning how to draw or sketch, Mm -hmm. you know, a basic rectangular prism. Because again, I feel like that's a little bit omitted and skipped these days. And so if they're taking their little bite-sized Snickers and then sketching that out and then cutting out the cross section. And if you're taking more time, yeah, you can see what you've got drawn there is like the isometric angled perspective. A lot of folks just draw the, the true cross-section, which is a straight-on view of the side of the cut yes. chocolate. Um, so, there, yeah, you could have an engineering drafting lesson, you know, similar to what Cheryl Sorby is teaching uh, with a little candy bar, a yeah. little snack-sized candy bar. So, yeah, that's, that one's always a hit. <laughs> these, are, these are great. These are fun, and these are, are very valuable to what is ahead in their future. Mm-hmm. Well, Joni, thank you so much for being here. Is there any last thoughts that you would want to share with our audience? Well, that's a big question. Um, any, any last thoughts that you would love to let parents or gen ed teachers or GIs? So I guess it would know? go back to, you know, give kids exposure to ways of thinking, right? So whether it's spatial, whether it's analogies, classification patterns, like just give kids practice on those basic skills of, of solving novel problems. So just to expose them to like all the weird ways that we'll try to ask them to reason. And that can be helpful for life and for, you know, certain tests that they might take. Awesome. Thank you, Joni. All right. Thank you. My name is Ann Flick. I am a gifted instructional specialist in Cincinnati, and I also um, teach in Xavier University's gifted endorsement program, where I teach graduate students who are getting their um, gifted certification. And I got interested in spatial reasoning because my own education was utterly lacking in training in spatial reasoning. And I've really felt handicapped by that um, through my whole adulthood. So as a math teacher teaching gifted learners, I didn't want to pass along my deficits to my students. And I realized the K-12 curriculum also doesn't really address this very much at all. So I set out to learn how to support my students' growth in spatial reasoning. And as I did the research, I found it seemed to fall into four main categories, two that surprised me and two that didn't, but nevertheless, they had some area for optimism. The first thing I hadn't realized is how important spatial vocabulary is. So children have been researched in both how many spatial terms they use and also how many terms they hear from the adults around them. And what these studies have found is that students who hear and use lots more spatial vocabulary score higher on spatial tasks that are utterly unrelated. They're nonverbal tasks, so they're not even related to spatial vocabulary per se, but they do better on them. And not only those tasks, but they also have better math scores years later. So I realized this confirmed my suspicion that this is a really important area for students. And the researchers believe that spatial vocabulary gives kids actual words for these nebulous concepts, letting them pin down concepts like bent or between. 
So if you think of that carnival game where you hide a ball under one of three cups, you might show the child and say, I'm hiding the ball here. But here doesn't have any universal meaning. If instead I say, I'm hiding the ball under the center cup, now the child has a name for that spot. Here could be the center cup, but also lots of other places. It could be the left cup. It could be the right cup. It could be behind the cup. But there's only one center cup in a row of three. And research has shown kiddos are better at finding the target item when the spatial term is used. Additionally, they think spatial vocabulary helps direct children's attention to the actual spatial attributes of a figure rather than other characteristics like color. If we ask a child to look at the tallest tower rather than the red tower, now she's thinking spatially. So in my classroom, I try to be intentional about using and even emphasizing spatial vocabulary as often as I can. And it's important for parents to know, too, that this gives them the power to give their children a little bit of boost by using those spatial terms frequently. And you can just Google. There's a great resource from the Columbus School for Girls. Just Google Columbus School for Girls Spatial Vocabulary. They have an excellent handout of the 160 words that they listen for in one of these studies. And Dr. Lakin already talked about how important simple block play is for spatial reasoning, and it's a great avenue for kids to hear and use that spatial language. Crucially, though, we adults have to sit and play with the children, so we're all having those spatial discussions. Research has shown if a child and adult work together on a block task with a common goal, like let's build a castle together or let's see how tall we can build this tower, then more spatial terms are exchanged between them. The other guidance I was really surprised to discover is the importance of gestures, again, both by the child and the adult working with the child. Nora Newcomb has done a lot of research on spatial reasoning, and she summarizes that students usually learn better when their teacher uses gestures in addition to speech. She also cites research that shows children also learn better when they themselves use gestures either right before or during instruction. Of course, gestures are a great avenue for little kids who haven't yet learned all those 160 words, and um, it helps them verbalize, well, a concept that they can't verbalize. It lets them express that spatial concept. So in the classroom, I've learned to use a lot of gestures, and this modeling seems to rub off on the kids who realize now they have permission to gesture, too. There's a great game that we play that nurtures both of these skills, the gesturing and the spatial vocabulary. It's called Master Builder. We use multi-link cubes because you can attach the cubes at any face or all the faces on the cube rather than unifix cubes that stack only in one direction. So each player in the pair gets eight cubes all the same color. They put up a file folder between them to block the view of each other's assembly. They can't look at what each other has created. The first player creates any structure he wants and then gives directions to his partner to replicate the structure. So that partner can ask any clarifying questions she wants. So they're definitely using spatial vocabulary, and that's why each has only one color, so that they're not fixating on that attribute of color. Instead, they're focusing on the spatial characteristics. And most students also end up gesturing while they're playing this game, too, especially when they add more cubes to make more complex structures. 
What wasn't so surprising to read was that research confirmed what I had heard most of my life, that men are better at spatial reasoning than women. However, there were some important and even surprising elements embedded in that research. Just a few years ago, Lauer and colleagues did a study that found, and I'm quoting here, twice as many men as women are top performers in mental rotation, making it one of the largest gender differences in cognition. And I was just stupefied to find that. And I was kind of sitting there overwhelmed, but I kept reading because their study offered some hope because they tested children on skills of mental rotation. And mental rotation is a skill that's in virtually every definition of spatial reasoning. They found no gender difference among preschoolers. But, and this is a quote, a small male advantage emerged in children between the ages of six and eight. So I started thinking about that as a teacher, and I kind of find it empowering that we don't have to let that tiny gap even emerge and certainly not grow because we can catch girls when they're young and build on the spatial skills that they showed as preschoolers, but certainly not that gap when I see them as middle schoolers is going to be as big as it is in the population of adults. So there was another study done, really it was a meta-analysis where David Utall and Nora Newcomb looked at almost all the spatial reasoning that had been done till their paper in 2013. And they, in fact, emphasized that these adult gender differences apply to populations, that we can't extend them to individuals because any given woman can have much stronger spatial reasoning scores than just a, 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 a specific man. So we don't want to generalize to individuals. What they found that was so, so important, though, is that both genders can make the same gains from training. So that validates our efforts to teach these skills. Even better, there were two other papers, Fang and colleagues in 2007 and Spence and colleagues in 2009, found that with training, the gender gap can be narrowed and maybe even eliminated. So practically for teachers and parents then, we have to be aware of stereotype threat and not send explicit or even implicit messages to girls that they can't do as well as their male counterparts. Because research has shown that stereotype threat can cause anxiety, anxiety eats up working memory, and working memory is known to be valuable to reason spatially. So as Dr. Lakin already pointed out, we have to maintain that growth mindset, realizing that first, we can teach these skills, and second, that girls can learn them right alongside the boys. In fact, earlier this week, I was playing Qubits, that game, like that capital Q-B-I-T-Z. I was playing that game with my seventh graders. And they're a small group with two boys and one girl. And Qubits is a really challenging game, at least for me, that requires decomposing patterns, which just means breaking up a pattern into its parts so that you can arrange these blocks that have different designs to recreate the full pattern. And as the four of us competed, all three of the kids each won multiple rounds. I won not a single one, and I was trying my hardest. But in a dry spell, the girl said, this isn't fair because boys are better at spatial reasoning than girls. She's a seventh grader, and she has this message already. And I immediately said, where did you hear that? Like, it was the most ridiculous assertion. Now, I didn't lie to her, but in the thick of the game, I wanted to kind of dislodge her out of that mindset. And now I know that I have to emphasize to all the kids how valuable training is. 
Another area of spatial research is poverty, and we need more research to consider this, but there is some tentative suspicion woven through a couple of the papers that children from low SES backgrounds may actually exhibit stronger spatial ability than their wealthier counterparts, but we need more research on this. However, the development of those talents may not be as robust when, first of all, the tools and the toys and the games we use to develop those skills can be pretty darn pricey. And two, education neglects these skills. So education does not serve as the great equalizer here for spatial reasoning. So there's a researcher named Brian Verdeen. He theorized that block construction may be tough for less affluent students because of exposure. So if you're a parent and you've got a limited amount of money to buy your kid's birthday present, and there's this expensive, nice set of blocks, and there's this other video game that probably doesn't even cost as much as the nice set of blocks, what are you going to choose? Even if they're the same price, most parents are going to pick the video game for the kid. Um, so kids don't even get exposure to those that kind of basic block play necessarily when finances are an issue. That's the suspicion. So there are lots of great building and construction toys in addition to blocks, like Lego kits, um, Kiva blocks, especially their brain builders kits, Lincoln Logs and Connects. And while these are all great freeform kits that are good for creativity to develop spatial skills, it's best to give kids versions of these toys that have them building specific structures. So they end up creating a three-dimensional construction from the two-dimensional directions. I still have in my basement the Ferris wheel from Connects that my daughters put together 15 years ago. Um, but those kits are really expensive, so it helps if the school can fill the gap. So most heartening, though, from Utah and Newcomb's meta-analysis is that spatial reasoning is four things. Malleable, teachable, transferable, and durable. Malleability means spatial skills can change for everyone, and we all can improve. Teachable means that training makes a genuine difference. All age groups, the research found, children to adults, make gains with training. And I can attest to this with two adult daughters. I've gotten better as I've done this with my students. Transferable means that, a, that the ability that we develop transfers to other spatial tasks that are similar to the training we do, but it also carries over to completely different spatial tasks, and it even carries over to math tasks. And some researchers even speculate that spatial reasoning may even help with reading skills. So spatial skills also have been shown to be durable, meaning it's like riding a bike. Once children get the hang of it, they tend to remember it. Importantly, though, researchers have found it's important not to give up on kids who struggle at first, so those who start lower, like I do, often have a longer on-ramp, and we take longer to break through. So it's vital that training lasts long enough. If you're into stats, the meta-analysis showed a mean effect size of 0.4. So if we could train all children in spatial reasoning and distribute that effect across the entire population, we would actually double the number of people whose spatial skills are as strong as those of current engineers. And research has shown us how. I'm quoting the meta-analysis here, where they say there is no wrong way to teach spatial skills. 
absolutely every type of training that has been studied has been successful. So the best thing for teachers and parents is to dive into any and every spatial task and game with the kids that we can. We had two remarkable guests today. What were some of your biggest takeaways? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I have to just say, I was definitely fangirling over Joni when we met her in person. And that was just truly a remarkable down-to-earth conversation where she really is an accessible person who really enjoys talking to anyone about what she does and all of the things about the COGAT that we really try to talk about in our own district, in our own department of gifted at our school district, and how important it is to fully prepare our students when they're getting ready to take a big cognitive ability test. Yeah, and I also love how she stressed how important it was to give everybody the opportunity to learn. I know we have worked on this a lot in our district and trying to expose all students in our grade level Mm -hmm. to thinking skills so it's more equitable and it makes the test more valid for everyone. That's right. And speaking of, uh, last year we were able to begin a – tier one program for our grade level and really implement a talent development type program, kind of grassroots, but we did it. And we were able to go into every single homeroom and teach thinking skill lessons to every single student, to the entire class. The homeroom teachers were right alongside of us and they gave us the 25 minutes that we asked of them to have in their classroom time so that we could really expose all students in every single homeroom in our third grade, grade level. And it was just really awesome to be able to say, we are really developing every single student's thinking abilities. Yeah. And I also want to not forget to touch on visual spatial thinking and kind of challenge our audience to push themselves to really use the visual spatial vocabulary, hand gestures, all the things that kind of tie in with visual spatial as it can strengthen your life in so many different aspects. And And it's so incredible to hear the research that Ann Flick did and shared with us today after Joni's section. And we've been professionally developed from Anne over the years and just knowing her locally and having her come in and work with us has been such a true treasure for us as educators to be able to develop our own knowledge and understanding about uh, visual spatial skills or VSI as we call it for short. But it's been awesome to see how it's infiltrated our district at our level where it goes from us talking about it with colleagues outside of school to bringing her in for professional development. And then now it's going through the different grade levels because our other colleagues are on board. And it's just an exciting time to be able to help bring more visual spatial learning to our students when we know the research about what's happening in our colleges, um, particularly particularly the ones in Ohio, where we have the data that students are just taking themselves out of the STEM-related fields and 
majors because they don't have the confidence. They don't feel like they have the skills to stick in there um, through even just freshman year of engineering. Yeah. And Joni ah. also mentioned that how people were purposely switching or adjusting their majors because the visual spatial mm -hmm. aspect of certain careers and majors were was too much to handle. Yeah. Yeah. So tell, let's talk about what we did last year just at, because we were so influenced and inspired by Ann Flick and what she was teaching us at the time, uh, what we did as just one of our warm-up lessons that turned into this huge thing. So we first started small. We had the students who are third graders sit down at their notebooks at their tables and see if they could write directions to get to a location in the building. So they were allowed to check, pick the gym, the cafeteria, the library, whatever it from was. From the same starting point. So from, from this classroom that we're sitting in right now, they had to take the directions left or right. We're inside of a circular like wing. And so it was very interesting to see how they wrote those directions because we actually walked them out. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes you ended up in the middle of the field <laughs> outside the playground. <laughs> or we were totally turned around from what they were thinking in their minds. And they're like, that's not the direction I meant for you to go. And we're like, well, it says turn right. And they're like, well, I meant this way. And we're like, you mean left? So yep. that was a real eye opener for our students just within the walls and the you know building here at our school. So then somehow we got to joking around and talking with the students that if they would write directions and pay attention on the bus or in their car, depending on how their mode of transportation is to leave school, if they were watching out the window, we said, write some notes or, you know, write the directions, how you would get from our school entrance to your home and write it down for us and bring it back and we'll go show up at your doorstep. And sure enough, we probably had, what, 15 students yep. who submitted the directions yep. to their home. And some we were not, <laughs> once again, able to get to because the big red house, there was about three of them and we weren't wanting to <laughs> knock on a random person's door. But so many of them were successful and very intentional about the vocabulary they were using and the yeah. word choice and, you know, landmarks that they chose even and, learning the names of the streets yeah. in our community, because our community is not very big. I mean, it's it's fairly small, and it's, you know, something that they're going to need to know in the next few years when they begin driver's ed. And it's awesome for them to, like, start paying attention now to the left and the right, the north and the west and the south and the east and all of those things that you tend to pick up when you're about 16 and driving. So whether you're an adult or whether you have kids, <laughs> challenge yourself to do this as well and see if it is something that you are successful Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Harder it, than you think because we depend on GPS these days. Exactly. Exactly. And that is that is a big stretch for all of us to get out of that habit and make our brains, force our brains to do something quite different. So the other thing that I think was worth mentioning um, our colleagues in fifth grade have been also so so much inspired by the visual spatial intelligence and all of the research behind it that they have started a challenge, weekly challenge. Wednesday, I Wednesday, think Wednesday challenge. And that challenge is only about visual spatial skills. So they've been doing a lot of work with tangrams. They've been doing a lot of work with. There's, they're following like step-by-step -step directions. And if they follow it accurately, they'll come up with a picture or an image at the end that 
turns out the way it should be or maybe not so much. (laughs) And they have a whole week to do it and then they turn it in. And there's um, some fun rewards, just some goofy little things. But um, it's been great to see the statistics rise of how many students are actually participating in this over um, this first semester of school. And it's it's just a lot of fun and getting those students um, more involved in and more aware of their visual sp- spatial intelligence. So thanks for listening, everybody. Tune in to our next season, which will be sometime in the new year. Speaking of next season, we would love to hear from all of you. We want to know what you want to hear, what topics you want to be covered, and maybe what guests you'd like to hear from. Is there anybody out in the gifted world that you think needs to be here with us on Adventures in Being Gifted? That's right. Tell us people we need to get in touch with by going to our website and letting us know, tweeting us, sending us messages, emailing us, and let us know if you have a story that you think needs to be shared on our podcast for other people to relate to or to hear um, or even to learn from. This is this is so important. We really want you to let us know the topics that you want and just what what direction we want to take next season. And don't forget to share Adventures in Being Gifted with your neighbors, your friends, and anyone who you feel could benefit or learn something from this podcast. Take care, everybody. 